Hey there, podcast listeners. This is your host, David Rayburn, and today we have the pleasure of talking about pediatric seizures with Dr. Zach Daniels. Welcome, Dr. Daniels. Hey, everybody. So Dr. Daniels is a pediatric intensivist here at Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and we're excited to have him on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Daniels and I actually trained together in Indiana, so we're uh, kind of bringing things back together here in New Orleans now um, and going to talk with you about seizures. Uh, Dr. Daniels is neurocritical care trained, and seizures are something that he runs into fairly frequently in the PICU, so he is the ideal person to help us out. So, Dr. Daniels, how are we going to guide through this today? Um, so We're going to break this up into different sections, uh, seizures and, frankly, uh, neurology in general represent a pretty small subset of the pediatric boards, but um, a lot of the questions can be pretty straightforward and easy points. So I think a good place to start is just differentiating different seizure types as a foundation. Um, this can, you know, frankly be a fairly dry topic, but like in many aspects of medicine, the shared language we use uh, is important um, when talking to each other. Um, I think this is particularly important when you're calling neurology for a consult, especially at night when they're not in-house. Um, so you can kind of describe the seizure uh, movements effectively so they can kind of build a picture in their head. Um, and oftentimes the description of the seizure leads to uh, differences in how we work up seizures. Um, unfortunately, the definitions that we use for different seizure types uh, are a little bit in flux. Um, there is a whole organization called the International League Against Epilepsy, or the ILAE, which defines the standard language used to categorize epilepsy types and terminology. Uh, you know, an epileptologist once jokingly told me that the organization exists to torment neurology residents and pediatric residents and, and provide job security for academic neurologists. So um, you're going to see some of that in here. Uh, you know, I think you'll see some, hear me use some terms that are, are different than ones that you've heard before because I think some of these changes are, uh, you know, only kind of filtering into the way we talk about seizures uh, more recently, it's, it's a little bit difficult to tell what the pediatric boards will test in terms of, you know, what lingo they're going to use, but these guidelines did come out in, uh, I think, 2016. So, you know, I, I think the new way we describe seizures will start to filter into pediatric board questions. Um, so you've probably heard this word semiology before, and that's where we'll start. Um, but in case uh, you weren't sure what that means, it means simply the behavioral manifestations of seizures that are witnessed. In general, these seizures, these um, behaviors rather, can be divided into several broad categories, including motor movements, behavioral changes, and alterations in consciousness. You can then get more specific in terms of like different somatotropic modifiers, such as left, right, face, arm, leg, etc., to describe the movement for more precise localization. Uh, keep in mind uh, that these these definitions have really little to no influence on how we treat um, a seizure in an emergency situation. And we'll certainly talk about, uh, you know, how we treat seizures uh, and status epilepticus later in the podcast. But um, I thought it would be great to start with some kind of foundational terms with how we approach treating seizures. I think that's very, very reasonable. And I will do my best to remind you that this is a pediatric board review, not a fellowship uh, <laughs> board review. Sure. So we'll kind of uh, bring it back together. I think ultimately we may end up splitting this into a kind of diagnosis and, and treatment podcast. So the treatment may end up being separate, but uh, you guys tune in and we'll figure out how we take it. But why don't we talk about some of that general terminology that you were leading into there? Okay, so um, I think we can divide this into several classes um, in terms of how we describe seizures. Uh, and I think the, the simplest place to start is with motor movements. So, um, you know, you'll hear us describe different things like 
you know, clonic movements, for instance, and that's a sustained rhythmic jerking movement. You'll hear us describe things as an atonic movement, and that just simply means muscles become weak or limp. Um, you also hear us describe things as tonic, muscles becoming tense or rigid, and then myoclonic, brief muscle twitching. And then, you know, another seizure type, which is a little bit distinct and we'll really get into more about later, and that's epileptic spasms, and that's when the body flexes and extends repeatedly. Um, so those are the kind of the terms that we use for, for motor movements. And, you know, the second way we describe seizures is really with, with the behavior changes that you see with the seizure. So these can be things like changes in sensation, changes in emotion, changes in thinking or cognition, so whether they're aware of their surroundings or they're not. Um, other things you can see with seizures are autonomic functions, so these include, include things like gastrointestinal sensations, uh, things like goosebumps, heart racing, uh, waves of heat or cold, and then the last one is lack of movement or behavioral rest. Um, so those are kind of the, the broad terms that we use to describe uh, how we describe seizures, and the fancy term we use, that, we use for that is semiology. Yeah, so and I think if you go back and you rewind about a minute ago and you listen to that again, I think you get a good idea of when you're describing a seizure. A lot of people say tonic-clonic, but what exactly does that mean? So I think if you go back and listen to what Dr. Daniel said, it's going to help kind of make sense in your head, and the next time maybe you call a consultant to discuss it, you're going to have a better understanding as well on what that seizure means. Um, as far as uh, kind of seizure categories are concerned, uh, could you kind of walk us through? I know there's a lot of terms that are associated with this as well, but trying to make it a little bit easier for our listeners to understand. Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through some of the broader seizure categories, and then we'll get into some of the specific uh, seizure types and syndromes a little bit later. Um, uh, you know, there, there has been a large history in neurology of different terms being used to describe the same thing. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, I think it's important for you to familiarize yourself with that terminology because it's very important when talking to a neurologist to make sure you're on the same page about what you're describing. Um, so in terms of the broad seizure categories, um, you know, the first is generalized onset. Um, generalized seizures affect both sides of the brain um, and they affect cells in both sides of the brain. They don't need to involve the entire brain, so that's often a misconception. It really just needs to be parts of both sides of, of your brain. In terms of a focal onset seizure, the term focal seizure has been used for years, but the lay public uh, and many professionals still use the term partial seizure. So that's something that you could still see on your boards, um, but I, I think the term focal onset is going to st start to be the standard in the way we describe seizures. Um, focal seizures may start on the surface of the brain or in deeper areas and can, can be very localized or spread to larger areas. Uh, sometimes more than one network can be involved as well. And then the third type of like a broad seizure category is an unknown onset. Um, seizures may be of unknown onset if the beginning of the seizure is not clear. As more information becomes available over time through testing, the type of seizures may be changed or generalized or focal onset seizures. So oftentimes when a kid first comes in, the description of how they're having their seizure is not very clear from the parent. Um, as you know, parents can be very stressed in these situations. They're not, often not the best historians, and that's, that's really not their fault. Um, so, you know, in first, you know, if you're not sure how you're going to describe a seizure to a consulting neurologist, for instance, you can just say, you know, unknown onset, unclear story. Um, the next part... Wait a second. That sounds like that's going to be my, my ace in the hole from now on. It's just going to be unknown onset. 
<laughs> yeah, no, and I think that's fair. I, I, and I think neurologists kind of uh, understand that, especially for the first time a kid has a seizure, when the parents are not uh, used to this uh, at, in the home, um, they often will not look for the things that we need them to look for. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, that we often ask parents as pediatricians is the next time the seizure happens, can you videotape it? Um, oftentimes we can get them to videotape it and then we can look at the video and fit it into one of these broader categories because, you know, one of the, how we describe seizures is very important in terms of how we do the workup. Oftentimes it takes multiple EEGs to finally diagnose where a seizure is coming from. Um, so, you know, that first medication choice uh, may or may not be effective because the seizure type may not be known. Okay. All right. Very good. How about as far as, so that's kind of the broad seizure categories, but if you're looking at kind of the, the consciousness um, for a focal seizure, I think that that can be further kind of expanded upon, correct? Yeah, and again, this is another area where the, the terminology has changed, unfortunately. Um, but, I, you know, I think the, the new terminology is honestly better. Um, so I, I found myself, especially as an intern, when I would hear this term simple partial seizure, for instance, I would have to do some mental gymnastics in my head to really, you know, create a picture of what that looks like. Um, so the first, the first type of focal seizure we'll talk about is a focal aware seizure. And during a focal aware seizure, there's no change in a person's awareness, even if they're unable to talk or respond during the event. And this really replaces the term simple partial seizure. Um, so I've always found the term simple partial seizure to be a bit cryptic. Um, you know, simple, I don't think really describes what's going on at all. And I think that's the purpose of the, the new guidelines is to, is to use some words that actually describe the seizure. And I think that makes a little bit more sense. Uh, the next seizure type is focal impaired awareness. Uh, if awareness is impaired at any time during a focal seizure, it would be called a focal impaired awareness seizure. And this replaces the term complex parcel seizure. So again, um, complex doesn't really describe uh, impaired awareness, in my opinion, in the way we generally talk about something that's complex. Um, so I think focal with impaired awareness is a much better term um, and I think makes a lot more sense. So, you know, I think regardless of which term they choose to use on the boards, uh, if they do use the term focal impaired awareness, I think you're going to know what that means. Um, the, the, third, the third one is basically a combination. Um, so focal to bilateral tonic-clonic. Um, so a focal seizure may start out in one part of the brain um, with some either impaired awareness or some awareness. And then it may uh, spread to involve both sides of the brain. And generally speaking, when a seizure gets generalized, they become unaware. Um, so usually other changes occur. For example, the seizure may spread to cause body stiffness or tonic movements and jerking movements or clonic movements. Uh, so the term focal bilateral tonic-clonic will now be used instead of the older term uh, secondary generalized seizure. Um, so again, you know, they're just trying to make the language a little bit more clear. Yeah, I think if you spell it out a little bit more, it's easy to understand and like you said, kind of give that common language uh, to discuss amongst everybody. All right, so I, I thought it would be useful just, you know, because we just described a lot of different changes to just kind of run down uh, what the old terms were and what the new terms are, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. Sounds good. Uh, so tonic-clonic, no change. You can keep using that word. Clonic, no change. You can keep using that word. Tonic, no change. You can keep using that word. Myoclonic, no change. You can keep using that, that word. Uh, myoclonic, tonic-clonic is a new term. 
um, and it means exactly what it says. There's some myoclonic movements, there's some tonic movements, there's some clonic movements, and we just put all of those into one term. Uh, myoclonic atonic is also a new term that didn't exist before, but again, it's just combining those two words so that you have some myoclonic movements and you have some lack of movements and atonic movements. Um, atonic, still no change. Epileptic spasms, um, that's a new term and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, uh, you know, they're just trying to be a little bit more um, broad in terms of how they define what those look like. Um, and then the next one is generalized non-motor seizures. So that's kind of a broad category, but they, it includes things like typical absence, um, which has not been changed. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Atypical absence, which uh, also has not been changed. And we'll define more about what that means in a bit. Uh, myoclonic absence, which is a new term, and eyelid myoclonia, which is also a new term. So we won't get into the, the second two very, uh, very much, but um, just know that there's some new terms out there that, um, that, that could possibly show up on boards. And we often have some kind of clinical stuff that sneaks into this board review podcast, and we have a lot of pediatricians out there and other clinicians that listen to this for kind of clinical practice as well. So I'm, I'm sure that's really helpful. Uh, that was a great overview of you know, our seizure categories, but I think getting into the meat of our talk here is going to be diving into the different seizure types. So do you want to start with febrile seizures? I think that's one in pediatrics that everybody is uh, you know, pretty comfortable with that term. Yeah, so um, no uh, talk about pediatric uh, seizures would be complete without talking about febrile seizures. And I find that this is one of the more testable uh, topics on uh, pediatric boards and you know I, I think that's because you know it's fairly common and pediatricians are often the first line in terms of managing this type of seizure um, and counseling parents on what to expect uh, in the future so um, yeah, so let's get started so febrile seizures typically occur for anywhere from three months to five to six years old um, you know, I, I remember studying for the pediatric boards, and I just remembered six months to six years. But just know that, you know, that's a general range, um, and uh, it can certainly occur outside of those ranges as well. Um, it occurs in two to five percent of children, uh, and there is certainly a slight tendency for it to run in, in families. And when we talk about febrile seizures, uh, we divide them up into kind of two broad categories. So the first is uh, a simple febrile seizure, and to have a simple febrile seizure, you must meet all of the following criteria. Um, so the seizure type must be generalized with full body convulsions. It must last less than 15 minutes, and you can't have more than one in a 24-hour period. Uh, the next type is the complex type, so a complex febrile seizure, and that occurs when any of the following features are present. Um, so it starts focally with one body part moving independently of others. Um, it lasts more than 15 minutes, or it occurs more than once in a 24-hour period. Um, so among children who have their first febrile seizure before the first birthday, about half will have at least one more. Um, I think this is you know, a fairly common thing that we get asked as pediatricians is, is this going to happen again? Um, so, but among children who are older than one year when the first seizure occurs, about one in four will have more. So, you know, it, depending on when the febrile seizure occurs, it, it does alter your risk of having a, a one in the future. Um, another thing we get asked about frequently as pediatricians is, is what is the long-term outlook for my kid who's had a febrile seizure? Does my kid have seizure disorder? Yes, that's, a, that's what is always asked. And, I, you know, I understand families, uh, you know, 
uh, worry about um, their kids having a seizure. Um, the good news is the vast majority of children with febrile seizures do not have seizures with fever after age five. Um, so most of them will grow out of it. So, you know, I think that can be reassuring to families um, and can alleviate, alleviate some of their concerns. So kind of along that same line, um, what are the risks for actually having a true seizure disorder or epilepsy going down the road for these children? Yeah, so we, we described kind of several risk factors when we talk to families um, that might put them at risk for having future epilepsy. Um, so the first one is problems with the child's development before the seizure started. Um, oftentimes that can indicate that there's, there's something else going on um, that maybe we need to pay attention to. The second one is having a complex or complicated febrile seizure that lasts longer than 15 minutes or more than one in 24 hours. Um, or one where one side of the body is affected and not the other. Uh, the third risk factor is uh, seizures without fever in a parent or brother or sister. Um, so if you have a history of epilepsy in your family um, and then you have a febrile seizure, uh, your risk of epilepsy goes up. So if the child has none of these risk factors, the chances of epilepsy developing later in life are about 1% to 2%. Um, and this is pretty similar to the risk of developing epilepsy in any child. Um, uh, so a good, thing, a good thing to know and a good thing to tell families. Um, however, children with one of the risk factors I just described have a 2.5% chance of later epilepsy. So, um, you know, with those risk, risk factors, your chances of developing epilepsy, although small, um, does, does double, basically. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I think a lot of these questions ultimately lead to, okay, I know the diagnosis, now how do I take care of it? What do I need to do? What is the treatment for febrile seizure? Yeah, so, um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on the parent, um, there are not good long-term treatments, and long-term treatments are necessary um, for most of these kids. Many kids will have one febrile seizure and never have another one again. Um, MRI and EEG are generally not necessarily unless uh, seizures unless the seizures are complex, particularly prolonged, or associated with some other illness, that type of thing. Um, the other question that comes up fairly frequently is the concept of fever reducers. Um, studies have not shown that antipyretics prevent febrile seizures, and the reasoning for that is oftentimes by the time you detect a fever, they already have a fever, and it's really the rate of rise, which, you know, kind of, you know, we've hypothesized uh, is the beginning of the cytokine storm, which leads to the febrile seizure. Um, so oftentimes by the time they have a fever, they've already kind of missed the window. So uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, as when I did more general pediatrics, that I did tell families that had um, kids with febrile seizures is, you know, uh, if your kid is going to get a vaccination, it's not a bad idea to pre-treat them with Tylenol um, if they have a history of having multiple febrile seizures. You know, I don't know if there's good evidence to support that, but I think it makes, makes good sense. I think there is some evidence, correct me if I'm wrong, that once you've had a febrile seizure, that especially in that kind of acute window, treating, providing fever control afterwards can potentially reduce your risk of having another febrile seizure. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it's a little hard to tease out. Um, so if you're in the midst of that illness, generally speaking, controlling a fever is a good idea. Um, however, oftentimes you need to be careful about saying that to families because they, you know, their kid will get a cold and not have a fever and they will just treat them with Tylenol for a week and then come in with, 
you know, liver issues and things like that. So Fair you, point. Need, you need to be very careful about what you tell families um, uh, in terms of antipyretics and, uh, and, you know, how it may or may not affect them having a seizure. All right. So really just uh, watch and wait. Watch and wait. You don't, you don't need to see a neurologist either. Excellent, yeah. excellent. So this is this is square in the pediatric pediatrician's realm. Got this. All right, let's move on to absence seizures. All right, so absence seizures. Um, I think first the you know I think first it's it's important to talk about what it looks like. So during an absence seizure, the child stares blankly and is unaware and unresponsive. Uh, you might see things like the child's eyes rolling up briefly. You might see some blinking movements. Um, you might see some repetitive movements like mouth chewing. Um, typically, these seizures last about 10 to 20 seconds, and then the hallmark features, they end abruptly. Um, and the child resumes normal activity, doesn't have a postictal period where they have any alterations in mental status, and, and they do not remember that the seizure happened. Um, you know, parents are often like initially really worried, like, how am I going to distinguish this from daydreaming? Um, and so, you know, what I, what I tend to tell families is if you can break them out of the daydreaming phase, that's not a seizure. Um, so absence seizures are, you can't interrupt them. They are short. Um, oftentimes they are not diagnosed for a long time because they're not very obvious. Um, so, you know, the classic story is a, a kid that's not been doing well in school, um, generally between the ages of four and eight, uh, and the, you know, the, the teacher says they've been staring off into space a lot, and a couple of times I was not able to get their attention, um, and I think you should see your pediatrician. Um, so that's kind of the general story that, that we get as pediatricians, um, and how we become aware that maybe there's something more that we need to work on. And I think it, you, you hit exactly what I was going to say, and that's the typical question stem for absence seizures, is they're going to talk about a child who's having difficulties in class, not paying attention, um, and they may kind of go down the ADHD route in the question stem, but they're actually looking for absence seizures. So I think that that uh, is exactly what I was going to touch on there. So thank you, Dr. Daniels. Yeah. So, you know, I think the other thing in, in a question stem that you need to be careful of is... Uh, you need to make sure that they're not describing some sort of a focal seizure. Um, I think they can they can word this in a way that's a little bit tricky sometimes. Um, so in in a focal seizure, typically the duration is a little bit longer. Um, the frequency is less often. So absence seizures happen frequently uh, all day long. With a focal seizure, it's it happens less often. And a focal seizure often has things like confusion or sleepiness afterwards. So in the question stem, they'll describe some sort of postictal state. Um, so, you know, that's one that's that's an easy point to get. You just need to really read the question carefully and and make sure you're understanding what they're describing. Um, the the next question is uh, who uh, gets absence epilepsy and when does it develop? So, you know, I said before, uh, generally it begins between 48 years of age, um, about one in three. Uh, report a family history of epilepsy, so it does run in families and there are some genes involved. Um, if you have a brother or sister with absence epilepsy, you have a one in chance of developing uh, epilepsy. Um, so again, like family history and risk is, a, is a strong risk factor. Um, then the next thing on boards that they might ask you is in relation to diagnosis. Um, so to diagnose epile absence epilepsy, um, you need a history and then you need an EEG. 
uh, and the EEG shows uh, generalized spike in wave discharges at a three hertz cycle. Um, this is a pretty easy buzzword question to get right. Um, so three hertz spike in wave uh, is is the you know the phrase that you should pick out for absence epilepsy in terms of uh, uh, EEG diagnosis. Um, I you know I remember a question on my board exam about how to treat. Uh, absence epilepsy, and I think, you know, I, I remember thinking like, well, it's ethosuximide. Um, but then ethosuximide was not one of the choices. Uh, so, you know, I, I think sometimes they can be tricky, and knowing that there's other treatments for absence epilepsy, I think is important. So um, the three medications that have been proven for first-line medication, for first-line treatment of absence epilepsy are ethosuximide, valproic acid, and levotrogen. Um, so oftentimes people pick ethosuximide because of the favorable side effect profile, um, but valproic acid, for instance, is equally effective, um, but it's often not chosen um, for a variety of reasons in relation to attention and that type of thing. Uh, lamotrigine is a little less effective th than valproic acid, um, but it, it does have a better side effect profile. Um, and then sometimes, in, in certain rare cases, these are used in combination. And of course, you meant uh, during one of your practice exams that this came up. Yes, of course. Yes. All right. So, excellent. Um, moving on uh, down the absence seizure pathway is what is uh, what would you describe as an atypical absence seizure? Yeah. So these are a little bit different. Um, these seizures may begin and end gradually. Um, this is a little bit different from the sudden uh, start and stop of typical absence seizures. Uh, the person will stare just like in an absence seizure, but they may be able to respond a little bit. Uh, this type of seizure is also associated more with falling during the seizure episode, um, so that, that is a little bit more common in atypical absence seizures. And atypical absence seizures usually last a little bit longer, like 5 to 30 seconds, um, and are most often more than 10 seconds. So, uh, you know, pretty similar, but uh, slightly different. Okay. Anything else to say about absence seizures? I think that's enough. All right, very good. Um, I think there's uh, another one that kind of has some board-relevant material, and that, that would be infantile spasms. Um, do you want to talk to us a little bit about those? Yeah, so um, infantile spasms uh, can also be referred to as West syndromes. You might see that. Um, and that's named after Dr. West, who first described these in the 1800s. So, um, you know, kids have been suffering from these for a long time, and... Uh, only more recently do we have some effective treatments for them. So uh, what do they look like? Um, an epileptic spasm consists of a brief, uh, you know, one to three second event of arm, leg, and head flexion, um, where the arms and legs pull into the body, or extension. Um, the spasms typically occur in clusters with events lasting about five to ten seconds over a five to ten minute period. So you'll kind of see these repetitive uh, flexion and extension movements. Um, spasms often are seen shortly after a child begins walking uh, and typically cluster um, several times per day. Um, infants often become irritable and may cry during the cluster um, and unfortunately often this leads to a misdiagnosis of colic in the beginning. Um, so you know this is one of those uh, where a video can be really helpful. Um, so asking the family to record what this looks like um, and when you see it you'll know it. Yeah, and there's some really good videos on YouTube that uh, show what this looks like. It's uh, you know, pretty stereotypical movements. Um, and then also we'll see if we can uh, put a video up on our Twitter uh, to, to describe these a little bit as well. Um, now, 
what causes uh, these spasms? Yeah, so this is pretty broad. This is pretty broad, but the most common cause is a structural change in the brain. Um, this may be due to things like a prior injury, so things like hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy during birth, um, a prior brain infection. So, you know, I, I had a kid who um, was diagnosed with uh, HSV encephalitis. Um, had multiple strokes as a result of that, and then came in a month later with uh, with infantile spasms. So um, that's kind of a common story, um, but it can also develop in otherwise healthy kids without any um, predisposition to this. Um, there are uh, certain kids with genetic and metabolic causes, um, and there are about 30 genes associated with infantile spasms thus far. Um, many of them have only been identified in like one or two patients though. So there's not like a necessarily distinct pathophysiology for these. Um, it, it's pretty broad. There is no evidence that family history, uh, a baby's sex, or factors such as immunizations are related to infantile spasms. So um, just good to explain that to families. And then, um, you know, as I said before, sometimes it just happens in a normally developing kid um, with one of these genetic predispositions. Um, and they're off to the races. All right. Well, I think there's a, a couple other that we need to touch on um, based on the content outline for the board. So I'm going to go ahead and let you take this next one because I'm not actually familiar with this. So I'm about to learn as well. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, we'll talk about these, these two uh, distinct seizure types um, in relation um, to infantile spasms because they are often related to infantile spasms. Um, so the first one I think we could talk about is Otohara syndrome. Um, the new word, the new phrase for that um, is early infantile epileptic encephalopathy or early infantile epileptic encephalopathy with birth suppression pattern. Naturally. Naturally. Um, so, you know, as, as we said before, like the general trend in uh, the terminology we use is to describe the EEG or describe the pathophysiology of the seizure, and that's basically what they're trying to do here. They're trying to get away from naming it after whoever discovered it. Um, so for, so you're telling me that there's never going to be a Rayburn syndrome? I, I don't think it's going to happen for you, man. Man. I'm sorry. All right. Uh, so for Otohara syndrome, uh, we'll, just, we'll just say it that way because it's a little bit shorter. Uh, the seizures begin before age three months. Um, babically, babies typically show um, pretty severe developmental challenges. They have motor and cognitive problems that get progressively worse. And the EEG is very abnormal in these kids. So it shows a burst suppression pattern. Um, so basically what you see is these uh, high amplitude spikes followed by these flat periods um, where there's no brain waves. Um, this is something that we, we shoot for sometimes in, in practice uh, when we're treating refractory status. Um, but in, in this case, this is, this is what the baby's brain looks like. Um, and so, as you can imagine, that leads to a lot of developmental concerns and early death. This is one of those that's associated with infantile spasms. So, um, you, you know, if you, have, if you have a kid in your practice with this diagnosis and the family comes in and says that my kid's been doing this weird movement, they need to see neurology pretty quickly because we'll get into the treatments for infantile spasms and tr treatment, treating early is, is really important. Uh, the next one is Lennox-Gastaut. Um, Lennox-Gastaut really describes multiple different seizure types, particularly tonic stiffening and atonic drop seizures. Um, the EEG during wakefulness shows this really distinct pattern of uh, slow spike and wave bursts um, of about 1.5 to 2.5 hertz. 
Um, and so that's another one where I, I, I doubt they test you on this. Um, they t generally test, you know, three hertz spike and wave for absence epilepsy, but just know that there are other syndromes with very distinct EEG patterns, which they could test on. Um, Lennox Gusto is generally caused by something structural, uh, metabolic or genetic, um, and these are the kids that typically end up on multiple anticonvulsants for refractory epilepsy, and infantile spasms is a risk factor for this, this type of seizure. So um, those are two that, you know, I don't think they'd ask direct questions on the boards, but it's good to know that there are certain seizure types which, for which infantile spasms uh, could happen more frequently. So I'm guessing we'll save CBD oil for another talk. We could, uh, we could talk about it during this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I mean, let's go ahead since, uh, you know, we're kind of leading into that. So uh, infantile spasms, you know, treatments, I know typically there was none, but it seems like there uh, are some more treatments available these days. Yeah, so um, we've been treating infantile spasms for, you know, a long time with steroids. Um, and then, you know, more recently, ACTH. Unfortunately, ACTH is not, is not given without some side effects. So you get things like uh, higher infection risk, high blood pressure, um, you can get stomach irritation, weight gain, um, the kids can look really puffy. Um, so there's been uh, a, a push towards seeing if there is other therapies that might be as or more effective. One that's kind of uh, come into favor more recently is Vigabatrin or Sabril, uh, which also has demonstrated efficacy. Um, however, it comes with this uh, warning that it can lead to loss of peripheral vision um, but that's more when it's used over a long period of time, so it's, it's a pretty rare side effect, but one that, that uh, neurologists worry about. Uh, and then there are some studies going on to see if combining steroids and ACTH and Vigabatrim may be more effective for seizure control and improve a child's uh, development long term. You know, I, I think the, di the diagnosis of infantile spasm comes with a, a lot of issues with development in the future, and so there's some neurologists that feel like, you know, if we could treat this a little bit sooner, maybe some of those developmental outcomes will be better. Most children with infantile spasms have intellectual disabilities later in life. They have pretty severe developmental delay, and uh, oftentimes this will only get worse if they had an underlying brain disorder um, to begin with. So, you know, going back to the kid I described with HSV encephalitis who had multiple strokes and then developed infantile spasms, um, obviously you'd be particularly concerned about that kid um, developing in the future. Um, the outlook is a little bit brighter for those who were developing normally before the spasms. Uh, about 10 to 20% will have normal mental function and some kids will only be mildly impaired. Um, so again, this is a really important reason to um, take a good history and get them to see a neurologist fairly quickly if you suspect that they have infantile spasms. There is some incidence of children with infantile spasms developing autism, and even if the infantile spasm stops, most children may later develop things that we talked about, like Lennox-Gastaut or multifocal epilepsy, and the epilepsy syndromes that tend to come after you have infantile spasms tend to be the ones that do not respond to medications well. And I think, uh, you, you know, we did talk about treatment kind of uh, ahead of this, but you definitely touched on the, the diagnosis. But there's another thing that is associated with board questions that may come up as far as diagnosis of uh, infantile spasms, right? Yeah, so another buzzword, uh, hips arrhythmia is the EEG finding um, that you'll see. Um, and this is basically a high voltage spike in wave pattern um, that, uh, that occurs and can be very helpful in and is kind of the pathognomonic feature of EEG um, for infantile spasms.
All right, very good. Well, I think we uh, covered everything we needed to cover about infantile spasms. Probably some of it for uh, your fellowship boards as well. Probably. <laughs> All right, um, moving on. Uh, I think we got a couple more syndromes, and then we are going to break um, and do a separate talk on uh, treatment and status epilepticus. So next one we're going to move on to is uh, Dravet syndrome. Uh, Dravet syndrome, you know, I, I think is one of those that uh, that you will see as a pediatrician, so I think it's good to know something about. Um, I don't tend to think that they'll ask you a board question on Dravet syndrome, but, um, but I, I think it's good to, to know some basics. So uh, for Dravet syndrome, they have varied seizure types. Um, seizures often happen with uh, a fever at first, and then uh, they develop tonic-clonic seizures. Uh, and oftentimes in these kids, that can result in status epilepticus. So if you have a kid with Dravet syndrome who has a seizure in your office, um, you need to worry that that seizure is not going to stop. The one thing that I feel like they could test on is the uh, Dravet syndrome. Um, eight out of 10 kids have a defect in SCN1A, um, which is the sodium channel. So it's one of the, you know, the, the genetics of epilepsy is expanding exponentially. Um, each year there are more and more genes that are implicated in the development of epilepsy. Um, this is one of the first ones that was described in the development of epilepsy, and it's, it's been around for a long time. So I feel like this is one that they, they actually could ask about, um, but, uh, uh, but it's hard to know. Sorry, my, uh, I, I apologize. My Midwest was showing. Uh, <laughs> now that I'm down in the South with more French oh, influence, it, yeah. Dravet syndrome. I, I know that there, uh, it, this can be difficult to treat and often is refractory to treatment, but I, I'm guessing that these treatments are probably beyond the pediatric boards as far as needing to know. Yeah, I, I don't think you really didn't need to know any of these. Um, just know that Epidiolex is one of the medications that um, is approved um, for treatment of Dravet syndrome. Um, you know, I, I looked up a couple studies here uh, for Epidiolex. So in a study of 120 children and teens, with Dravet syndrome, 43% of those treated with epidiolex had a greater than 50% decrease in seizures compared to 27% of those treated with placebo. So um, just know that um, there are some medications out there for, for these kids. Um, they have variable efficacy. Um, they're often used in combinations. So other ones you might hear of are uh, steropental or fenfluramine. Um, again, um, these are medications which um, I don't think you'll need to know for your pediatric boards, but um, just know that there are some treatments for Dravet syndrome. Like I said, throwing some clinical into our board review. All right, moving on to juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. Yeah, so juvenile myoclonic epilepsy um, also has been called epilepsy of Jans in the past. Um, this is the most common generalized epilepsy syndrome, and I do think this is one they sometimes do uh, create board questions out of. In terms of what it looks like, it looks like myoclonic jerks um, that happen within one to two hours of waking up. Um, so again, this is one that a video is very helpful when you have a family come in and say, you know, like my kid, uh, you know, he or she wakes up and she has these like shock-like movements of both arms and sometimes she drops her brush while she's, you know, brushing her hair and it just seems a little bit weird. Uh, what do you think that could be? Um, and so, you know, oftentimes a video will really help you diagnose this and get them the treatment they need. Unfortunately, later in this disease, they often have generalized tonic-clonic seizures, uh, and they can also have absence seizures. This is another one with a kind of a characteristic EEG, um, and the EEGs typically show a three hertz, three to six hertz 
uh, generalized polyspike and wave discharge. Um, it's important to counsel these families because, uh, you know, teenagers often stay up all night and talk to, you know, text their significant other and play video games and sleep deprivation can trigger this type of seizure. So uh, it's important to kind of address that sleep, sleep hygiene is very important. In terms of treatment for these kids, uh, there are many possible options. Uh, valproic acid has standardly been the most effective, um, but it's uh, avoided in teenage women because of its teratogenicity. So typically people will use Lamotrigine or Keppra as the most kind of widely used medications. In terms of outcomes, uh, the seizures are generally pretty well controlled in about 90% of people. Um, seizures will often last uh, until like into the fourth decade of life, and then many neurologists will consider weaning off medications at that point. Um, some will try to wean off medications a little bit sooner, but you know you do put the patient at risk for having a seizure. Um, but generally speaking, after 40 years of age, typically people are not having seizures, um, well outside of the pediatric age range. Indeed. All right. Well, uh, I know this has been a, a, lo a long talk for our listeners, so definitely rewind and uh, kind of go back through, but we're going to finish with one more. I'm going to go ahead and go with the term that I know and let Dr. Daniels introduce the new term, um, but benign Rolandic epilepsy of childhood is what I remember when I was studying for my boards, but apparently it has a new name. It has a new name. It's called childhood epilepsy with centrotemporal spikes. Makes more sense. It's, you know, what the EEG looks like. So, um, you know, it, that is the general, the general trend of these, uh, the naming of these types of epilepsy is to describe what you're seeing or describe what the EEG looks like or describe the pathophysiology. So um, kind of one of those three things. Um, so for this type of epilepsy, there are generally two seizure types. Um, there are the awake seizures, which start with twitching of the face or tongue. Generally speaking, the child remains aware and they're brief and last about two minutes. And then there are the sleep seizures, which may start with twitching, but then generalize more often. Um, this type of epilepsy usually begins around six to eight years of age, uh, and kids usually have normal intelligence and development. Um, the EEG, as you can guess, shows spikes in the centrotemporal region of the brain. And the treatment um, is varied, but uh, many children don't take seizure medication because they don't have seizures frequently enough to warrant it. But in those cases where they are having enough seizures to warrant it, um, typically Capra or Levetiracetam are the first go-tos. Um, as I said, you know, most children don't have frequent seizures with this, and most children will stop having seizures within two to four years after they begin. Um, so good outcomes and good to tell families that. All right. Well, Dr. Daniels, thank you so much for that fantastic review. Um, you guys make sure to tune back in. We're going to talk about status epilepticus um, and further treatment uh, discussions. So thanks again, Dr. Daniels. Thanks.